Chapter Twenty Two of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty Two, Fanaticism. Good for you, Mister Palmer," Mrs. Delancey said in tones which made her fastidious hostess wince. So high keyed were they. I'm glad you haven't joined the fanatics yet. There's Fern Redpath halfway beside herself on the temperance question. I should not wonder if she were to end up in an insane asylum. I shouldn't, really. She came to me to sign some sort of a petition the other day, something about some law upon the hobby she is riding. The perfect absurdity of the thing. I told her I was thankful it wasn't my business, that I had a husband to attend to those matters for me, and I could trust him to do it. Poor Fern, I'm sorry for her. She used to be such a lovely girl. Mrs. Delancey supposed herself to be talking confidentially to Mr. Palmer, but her loud tones had arrested the attention of the whole company, and there was an awkward pause for a moment when she ceased to speak. Mr. Chilton, at the outset, had intended to reply in a general way to Dr. Benham and pass on to some other subject. But as he became each moment more annoyed at the turn the conversation had taken, resolved to be silent, partly because he did not purpose to confess to the ownership of the building in question, and because he was a proud man, and did not relish being obliged to define his position, or commit himself to any line of action, especially did not relish being exhorted to duty by Mr. Remington. He was, moreover, a courteous man. The laws of God might be broken with impunity, but not so the code of social etiquette. He was growing more exasperated each minute, and, if he spoke at all, would probably be guilty of extreme rudeness to a guest at his own table. So, making an immense effort at self-control, he preserved silence upon the obnoxious topic, and set his next neighbor going on Gladstone. He made irrelevant replies, but lost not a syllable of Mr. Remington's remarks. Pale from suppressed excitement, and incensed beyond all power of restraint, he was beginning to speak when there came an interruption. A servant brought word that a messenger boy waited in the hall with an important dispatch. Excusing himself, Mr. Chilton withdrew, and in another moment sent for his wife. When he returned to the dining-room, it was to state in hurried words that the message was to summon his wife to the bedside of her dying mother, that a train left the station in a half-hour, and they would barely have time to reach it. Their guests dispersed soon after. Even Alec Palmer did not linger having a pressing engagement elsewhere. Mr. Chilton did not accompany his wife. An important meeting of bank directors, to be held the next morning, prevented the busy rich man from pausing in his career, even when so unfamiliar a presence as death was drawing near to one of his family. Elsie was alone with her father for an hour or two. Here was an unusual opportunity, she reflected, to speak of what had been to her a heavy burden for the last day or two, and which the conversation at dinner had not lightened. Her father's mood was not propitious. She knew he had been greatly agitated, so she thought to take him by guile. She drew the easiest chair near the grate in the library, brought his slippers, carefully warmed, then played and sang low, soft airs. When she had finished, she came and stood behind her father's chair, and fell into her old childish habit of passing her fingers lightly through his hair. Papa? "'Will you let me ask you a question?' she said at length. "'About what we were speaking of at dinner. "'You did not rent your building knowing that a saloon was to be kept in it, did you?' 
Suppose I did. What then? he said, his brow darkening. Oh, it cannot be that you would do anything so wrong. Say you did not. Oh, do. The tones were pleading and distressed. Mr. Chilton was amazed. How came you to know anything about it? he asked angrily. Elsie, do you know you are meddling with matters that do not belong to you? What does all this mean? It means, Papa, that I am a woman and not a child any more. I have got my eyes open to some of the wicked things that are going on. Oh, Papa, such a dreadful thing happened to one of my little scholars in the mission school. She has been made a cripple by her own father when he was intoxicated. I went to see her. Her home is so very poor and bare, and they are half-starved, because her father spends all his earnings for liquor. He has tried to reform, but the saloon is right there, and he is strongly tempted. I felt so much ashamed. When I saw that place, where a stream of men and boys are going in from morning till night, was in your building. Indeed, said Mr. Chilton, wheeling his chair about and glaring at his daughter. If Miss Elsie Chilton had been in the home that her father provided for her, instead of wandering about in the slums, she would not be quite so wise. It has come to a pretty pass that I am to be called to account by my own daughter, who is ashamed. Mr. Chilton had risen by this time and was striding up and down the room. This is what comes of putting a consummate idiot in the pulpit. You are, parrot-like, repeating some of his stuff. Please, Papa, don't be angry with me. But it seems to me dreadful for a Christian to have anything to do with the sale of such a horrible thing. You would better learn another part of Christian duty, then, and discover that it does not belong to a daughter to arraign her father. Oh, Papa, I am not arraigning. I only speak of it because I love you so much. I feel so sure that God will judge one who helps in any way to cause such misery. Please promise me that the man who keeps the saloon shall be turned out at once. You used to give me whatever I asked for. Won't you please grant me this? Am I not your dear little daughter yet? Now don't look at me so. Do say you will do what I ask. But the father was too angry to be moved by endearments. Elsie, he said, bringing his hand down on the table. Stop. Let me hear no more of this. You have listened to the fanatical ravings of those ignorant fools and have taken up their rantings, have taken for granted that of course they are right and your father is wrong. You seem to have joined yourself to a company of old women who prowl about the city and poke their noses into everything that doesn't concern them. You will stop that, too. That part of the city where you went is not a fit place for you, and I command you not to go there again. The idea of your getting up a maudlin sympathy for brutes who cannot control their appetites, they are not fit for you to think of, nor their miserable families either. Don't ever step your foot there again. But, Papa, my little girl is sick, and I promised to go and see her, and you are mistaken about one thing. I have not taken up with any talk to repeat it as a parrot might. They are my own conclusions, and after thinking, and reading, and seeing, I must speak and act according to my conscience. Heavens, your conscience, and your conclusions— thundered Mr. Chilton. You've no business with either. You would better cut off your hair and put on some strong-minded clothes and take the platform. 
If there is a woman in this world I hate, it is one of that sort. Leave the room. Do. To think that a daughter of mine should come to this. If he had not been so very angry, the look his daughter gave him, sorrowful, pleading, the eyes filled with unshed tears as she slowly rose to obey, would have melted him. But Mr. Chilton was more than angry. He was bitterly disappointed. He had spared no pains or expense to fit his lovely daughter for a high place in society. She had for a brief time fulfilled his highest hopes concerning her. Especially gratifying was her engagement to Alec Palmer. There was nothing in the way of a brilliant reign for her as queen in the social world for years. But of late she had declined invitations repeatedly, and she was losing fairy-like ways and puzzling herself over things that should never have come near her. She was endangering her prospects, beside, in many ways. Alec Palmer would probably not find such a wife to his taste, and again the man inwardly pronounced maledictions on those who had worked so much mischief and resolved to do his part toward making the pulpit of Kensett Square vacant very soon. There were reasons, too, why such talk from his daughter pierced him like a knife. Conscience had revived and was persecuting him. The torment was insupportable, for conscience had long been silent on this point. Gold was heaped upon it so heavily that it was nearly suffocated. Gold, which flowed in from other sources than the mere renting of one building for the purpose of dealing out liquor. A prosperous distillery had his name as a silent partner, although himself, his partners, and we were the only ones let into the secret. Yet Mr. Chilton did not intend to be a hypocrite, he was punctilious in regard to many religious duties. He gave liberally to all good objects, and was just in his dealings with his fellow men. When Elsie came downstairs the next morning, she found that her father had ordered an early breakfast for himself, and had gone to his office, leaving word that he would not be at home that night, as he should go to join his wife and return with her. It was a relief to find herself alone, sorrowful though she was. Her father was displeased with her, and there was nothing, it seemed to her, that she could do to be reconciled to him, for there was no confession of wrong on her part to be made. Elsie was growing into the consciousness that there are other methods of relief, when the heart is burdened, than floods of tears. Prayer was daily becoming something more to her than a repetition of familiar phrases, in a general way. There was a continuous lifting up of her heart for guidance in a life which had suddenly been turned from straight, flowery ways, into bewildering crossroads. What was to come of it all? How was she to be true to her new convictions, with all the pressure that would be brought to bear upon her? She sat alone toward evening, thinking it all over, when Alec Palmer was announced. She had dreaded to meet with him. They had not seen each other alone since the day they had met so inopportunely in the street. His admission, too, at the dinner-table the day before, that he had signed the paper petitioning for license, had fallen upon her heart like a heavy weight. She did not come with the spring to meet him to-night, as she used to do when she was a careless, happy girl. "'I am delighted to find you at home,' he said as he entered, not attending a mission school, or festival, or singing bad rhymes at a temperance meeting, nor closeted with two or three old women at a committee meeting. How does it happen?' It was scarcely a lover-like greeting— and Elsie detected more sharpness in the tones than in the words, even though Mr. Palmer smiled as he spoke. He was not in a decidedly bad humor, 
for he had just concluded a bargain which pleased him exceedingly, a purchase which he had long coveted, but owing to difficulties in settling the estate, could not gain possession of until now. It was an elegant house in a spacious street in the most delightful part of the city. It was to be his home and Elsie's. He would not tell her of it at once. There were some matters to be settled between them first, at which he had been slightly nettled, as his first remark proved. If he had known how his words jarred, and how they gave evidence to Elsie of utter lack of sympathy with her, he might have hesitated to speak them. Still, Alec Palmer was accustomed to having circumstances and people yield to his imperious will, and he considered any inharmony of views between them of little importance, as he could easily mould Elsie into what he wished when once she had become his wife. To this end he had in mind to propose an earlier date for their marriage than had at first been named. "'Then I shall put an end to these new whims she has taken,' this wise young man declared to himself. It was a grave face that was lifted to his, though the eyes were sweet. Somehow he shrank from those pure, steady eyes to-night, and would have preferred that his bantering mood should have been met by a bright repartee rather than by her low-spoken, gentle, oh, I have been at home a great deal this week. Then, in haste to speak at once of what lay heavy on her heart, added, I am glad you are come, Alec. I want to ask you to do something for me. Command me, he said lightly. You said at dinner last night that you had signed the petition for license in the fifth ward. You surely did not mean it. I surely did. Are you going about getting up a counter-petition that you wish me to sign? No, I am not getting it up, but there is such a petition, and, oh, Alec, I wish you would take your name from that one and sign the petition for no license. It has come to just what I feared, Mr. Palmer said, contracting his brows. You have become thoroughly infatuated with the rantings of those fanatics. It is highly complimentary to me to conclude that I am wrong, and they, of course, are right. I have reasons for my principles as well as they, and I act as I believe to be for the best good of the greatest number. How can it be possible that it is for the best good of any human being to have liquor sold as a beverage? I have been reading for myself on the subject, Alec, and I find that a great part of the misery in the world comes from that source. The Bible, too, is against it. I was searching to see if there was anything about it, and, to my surprise, I found this verse, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Is it not the same thing when you petition for someone else to be allowed to give it? How can there be a question about the right and wrong of it? Why should not every man vote always and everywhere against it, and try to legislate it out of the land forever? Alec Palmer looked down at the fair girl, with her soft draperies and her grace of form and manner. How had she suddenly become transformed from a dancing, laughing, winsome young maiden into this positive, argumentative creature? He could not deny that she had never looked more beautiful than now, with her glowing face and earnest eyes. If it had been a disquisition on art that she was absorbed in, he would have thought her almost divine. But this hateful subject! What had his fairy-like Elsie to do with such hard, disagreeable topics? She was becoming utterly spoiled. "'Women know nothing of these political matters,' he said, coldly, "'and it is best not to try to meddle with them. "'They cannot comprehend all the reasons for certain lines of action. "'Men are perfectly capable of adjusting these questions, 
and women would much better trust them and attend to matters in their own sphere, where they are far more attractive than when they assume to be strong-minded. Let me tell you that even liquor-sellers are not doing the harm that these addle-headed fanatics are, who are the means of dividing the country up into factions and diverting votes from important questions. An impertinent, conceited, bigoted, common horde who cannot see more than an inch ahead of them. Of course, they will secure a following among the ignorant, but it is mortifying that Elsie Chilton has been made a tool of to spread the foolish notions of a few unbalanced persons who egotistically imagine that they can make the world over. Elsie's color had grown brighter, and she was beginning eagerly to make her defense when Mr. Palmer added, By the way, let us change the subject. What impressive scene was going on between you and Mason just as I passed you in the street? I have scarcely seen you since. We simply shook hands. Did we look very impressive? Is he such a dear friend that you must take leave of him with so much demonstration? For the second time that week there came to Elsie a slight, indefinable sense of annoyance that she must be accountable for her smallest action as if she were a child. Her transparent nature would not allow her to evade or prevaricate, so she answered by telling the story of her visit to little Nellie, her meeting Mr. Mason, and their talk afterward. Indeed. So you and Mr. Mason go together on errands of mercy in the byways of the city. It is a pity he had not business enough to keep him employed, without his being obliged to fill up his time dawdling about in this way. He is contemptible. He is very noble, Elsie said, with a show of spirit. And we did not go together. I told you we happened to meet there. And so you announced to him that your purpose was henceforth to number yourself among the martyrs to a sacred cause? That is the way the cant phrases go, I believe. Did it occur to you that your life was to be joined with another's, and that that one might have something to say about your future? Alec Palmer was extremely angry. His face was white, and his tones were unsteady, for, added to other grievances, there had shot into his heart for the first time a swift pang of jealousy. The face of the girl who listened flamed up into vivid color. How could he speak of dear and tender relations in such a way? Her life joined to another, joined in the sense of shackles. Was that what it was to be? All her womanhood rose in protest, that any one, be he ever so dear, was to command her conscience and restrict her freedom of thought. The young man might well feel a jealous twinge, for at that moment, involuntarily and swiftly, Elsie contrasted the two men, not their eyes or complexions or height, but their manhood, and Earl Mason towered above the man who had pronounced him contemptible. In this she had no thought of being disloyal to Alec. Indeed, she recognized with sorrow the fact that such had been her verdict. Character, not those who interpret it, is alone responsible for the impressions it produces. No, she answered, lifting her head somewhat proudly. It had not occurred to me that I was not to obey my conscience and to have the utmost freedom of thought and action in all my future life. I will repeat what I said to Mr. Mason, that it is my solemn purpose to give, so far as I can, my strength, my voice, and my means to help wage a war against rum as long as I live. God helping me. It was evident to both, at that moment, that a great gulf had arisen between them. 
the man could not appreciate the heroism of the woman's words. To him they were mere absurdity, and she knew and felt it. Alec Palmer was astonished. This was not the timid, clinging girl he had come to put down by a few masterful words. She had been changed into a thoughtful, self-assertive woman. There was a moment of silence when they looked into each other's faces. One was fierce, the other resolute. Mr. Palmer resolved to resort to a desperate remedy and frighten this young reformer into a recantation. He forgot, in his rage, that he had resolved not to argue the question with her, but wait until he could speak with the authority he conceived a husband should have. "'You certainly,' he said, "'will not persist in such a course when I tell you that it is in direct opposition to my wishes, and that, after you have become my wife, it will be impossible for me to permit you to be prominent in any work of the kind. In fact, it would damage my interests politically.' "'We might as well be plain with each other, Alec,' Elsie said, speaking with effort, mingled emotions striving for the mastery. "'I cannot permit anyone, whether I be married or otherwise, to rule my conscience. What I promise to God I must perform.' "'Such absurd folly! Such infatuation!' he muttered, and then, "'Are you sure you will be able to meet the consequences of such a decision?' if the result of all this be to separate us for ever? He spoke in that low, hoarse tone into which some men fall when they are angry. He was utterly unprepared for the sentence that followed. I have sometimes thought it would have to come to that. We are so utterly unlike. We have somehow gotten upon different planes. We should make each other miserable, I fear. Her face, as she looked up at him, while she spoke those words, had a look in it, that was not so much of sorrow for herself as of pity for him. Alec Palmer bowed low with mock reverence as he said, I quite agree with you, Miss Chilton. Let this little farce end here, now and for ever. And then, without further speech, he turned and was gone. As he went out into the frosty air, he himself did not know which was hurt more, his heart or his pride. End of chapter 22